Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm so excited for this episode with Katie Hosley, who is the Senior Developer Advocate at BigCommerce. How's it going, Katie? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. So I like to start every episode with my guests' origin stories. So I'd love to go back in time a little bit and hear how you first got started with tech and coding. Great question. So I graduated college. Oh my God, I know it's like seven years or eight years ago now. And I backpacked after college. I was an English major. And when I came back from a year abroad, I was like the most unhirable person ever. Like I always had summer jobs and worked through school, but none of it was amounting to much. And I started working for my mom's best friend's like digital fitness company. And I was just kind of doing jobs for her. And through that process, I noticed that we have these contracted software engineers who would make these like incredibly minor changes to our website but it would take weeks. It would take weeks to get someone to change like a banner or a photo. And I just found myself thinking like, it literally can't be this hard. It just can't be. And then sort of a strange story, but I was on this retreat in Nicaragua and met these guys and they had started a software bootcamp in San Francisco called Hack Reactor, which if you're like in the bootcamp space, you might know of it. And, you know, they were like, we think you'd be a good candidate. Like you should think about it. And I was like, you know, I don't want to make this kind of huge decision while I'm on this retreat. That just seems like a bad play. And like four weeks later, I was moving to San Francisco to start Hack Reactor. So I really honestly had no idea what software boot camps were. This was kind of the time where they were sort of starting. Now I know there's like a hundred of them, but they weren't on my radar at all. Software engineering was not on my radar at all. Coding was not on my radar really at all. And so I kind of fell into it and really enjoyed it. Sort of like a windy path. And I know being an English major in tech used to be a unique story and it's totally not anymore. It's like tech seems to be filled with liberal arts majors now. But yeah, that's how I got here. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I also have a history degree and, you know, had brief inclinations to become a high school history teacher, but realized really quickly that was just like an incredibly difficult path. And I didn't really like school enough to go through with it, but I ended up in teaching anyway. So it's a little bit, you know, on the same path. When you went to that first boot camp, like what were you actually learning? Like, was this the days of Rails? Like, was it like JavaScript? Like, what were they teaching you? It was full stack JavaScript with like a huge lean towards like React and front end development, like kind of minor, just like, you know, the basics of database stuff and server stuff. But, you know, we left as full stack developers. I was definitely more knowledgeable about the front end. I still am. But yeah, it was a full stack JavaScript bootcamp. And so I saw that like pretty soon after doing that, you started teaching other people how to code as well. Why did you want to do that? Like that seems like a kind of an interesting path to go learn this thing, and then immediately start teaching other people about it. So Hack Reactor had this residency program where every cohort, a couple people would be hired to then like help teach the next cohort. So it was a little bit of like those who can't do teach for me, where I left the boot camp still not very good. I think a lot of people in my cohort just totally got it, hit the ground running, totally understood coding. And I was not like that. I needed that like, to go back and do it again and learn to teach it to other people before I really got it. So the first cohort that I taught, I was really behind the scenes, just kind of like 
you know, doing code reviews for people, doing these really minor things. And then a couple cohorts in, I was doing a lot more of the actual instruction. And kind of like you, I really did think about becoming a teacher until I learned what being a teacher in like the American school system is like. Hats off to teachers. We need them so much. But I was like, I definitely am not going to be able to do that. And so I really liked the idea of finding this kind of like hybrid role where like my technical knowledge was important and I could always keep learning. But I was kind of in this like teacher mode and had students. And I I really liked that. I know a lot of people who have found teaching people to code to be an incredible learning experience for themselves. Even I feel that way. Like when I work with students in the MLH community, like I learn a ton just by helping them through the problems they're facing. I'm curious, like, you know, a lot of the people who listen to this are more experienced developers. But like, when you're working with students, like when you're working with people who are just starting out, what are the things that they struggle with that like more experienced devs like wouldn't even like cross their mind? That's a great question. I think there's a lot in coding where it's like people who are too good almost can't understand the problems of people that are brand new because it becomes so innate to you. You just totally get it. I was so bad at coding. Nothing came naturally to me. And I think what a lot of people struggle with is all coding is easy to understand from a high level. You know, I want to add a button. I want to do this. I want to do that. People understand these concepts from a high level, but actually being able to translate the ideas into something you're typing on your computer, I think is a huge blocker for a lot of people. And so I would really drill down there a lot where it's like, you're just really isolating what bridge is missing to like get them across to be able to do a thing. And I think for a lot of people, it's those like basic fundamentals. You know, they jump right into learning to code, learning a framework or learning to code, trying to build an app or something. And building is the way to learn. But if you don't understand the fundamentals of like, what is a for loop doing? Or what are these different types of variables? You know, like what is an array and what is an object? Like, I think, especially in bootcamp land, I think there's like minor misconceptions and those kind of fundamental things that end up like snowballing over time until someone's so blocked. So yeah, for me, it was like really getting people to be able to talk through what they wanted to do and then like find those that connective tissue so they could actually put it in their text editor instead of keeping it in their brain. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, bootcamps are a little bit different, I think. They tend to be more practical. Mm -hmm. Like in the average computer science classroom, it's often the opposite where they like teach you like, here's what a loop is and what a variable does. And you have no idea why you would ever want to use that thing or how you use it, right? And so it's like taking that like weird abstraction of like, I understand code, whether it's like, I understand how to write a React app or I understand algorithms and turning that into a real idea that people can interact with. It's like a huge gap. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And computer science people know more about computers than I ever will because you're right, my education was so practical. Like, you know, I don't know. I really don't know anything about what's happening inside my computer. I can build a front end. I can build an app in no time, but um, actual computer knowledge, I have basically zero. Me too. But it's like, you know, I mean, people graduating with CS degrees who have never built something outside of class also can't build anything. And so like there's gaps on both ends. So getting back to like the idea that you were an English major and, you know, thought about becoming a teacher at some point, But now you work in DevRel, right, which we'll get deeper into. How has that liberal arts background and inclination towards teaching people like shaped your approach to DevRel? That's a really good question. I think like going from like liberal arts, which is so like fluid and there's not a lot of barriers around you, especially in college as a liberal arts major, they kind of want you to explore and want you to think differently. And not that that's not encouraging other, you know, 
fields, but it's so creative. And I think that has been really, really helpful for me in all of my jobs, but very specifically DevRel, because I'm just constantly encountering problems or encountering people with problems that I don't understand and like figuring out like, okay, what does our audience, who is our audience and what are they like? And what do they not understand? What do they understand? And just getting really creative on like, how can we solve these problems? Also being an English major, I can whip up a blog in like 15 minutes. So that I specifically being an English major and being able to like whip out written content really fast has been really nice. But I think a lot of it also is about communication and being able to like really effectively communicate with people to figure out what their problems are and then also figure out how I can help to solve them. Not just like necessarily in the immediate, but you know, if one developer we work with has an issue, there's a really good chance a lot of other people are going to have the same one. So yeah, I really think like communication and like being creative has been integral in particularly DevRel. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Like I feel like most of the DevRel people I talk to you know, describe it in some way along the lines of like combining technical knowledge and like, you know, community building, communication, empathy for other people's problems, like all of these like skills that aren't related to writing code, but help you make other people successful, right? And it's that combination that makes DevRel so different from engineering. And so when you think about like, you know, helping people through those like learning problems, like, okay, you know, what do I do to make this button do what I want it to do, right? Like, obviously, those are fairly introductory challenges that people face when they're learning to code. But I imagine that, like, in the big commerce developer community, you know, there are versions of that, right, in more complex ways. What are some of those challenges that you see people, like, running into? And how do you solve for them in a, like, a way that addresses it for the whole community? That's a great question. And, you know, some of the times people are running into problems that are straight up problems on the platform. Like any other tech company, we update things, things break, things are documented that aren't necessarily accurate because things have changed and we try to keep up as best we can. But one place I've noticed like that in particular is folks who are getting started on the platform. I think big commerce and I'm super biased, but I had no interest in e-commerce before I started working here. And so I don't really have a huge dog in the fight, but I think it's just not that easy to get started or wasn't that easy to get started when I started at Big Commerce. And I think like I wanted to pivot the way we talk about our platform and the way we think about it as a DevRel team to being a place that not only can people get things done, but they can also learn here too. Like as a developer who was horrible at coding, it was so frustrating when there was no content that would help me get going. And my team, if they listen to this, they'll laugh. I always harp on React's docs because React had docs that were just so cool for a new developer. Like I could get going, I could create an app if I just followed step by step. And it really made me feel, okay, like I get this, like I'm learning something. And it it gave me this like bizarre loyalty to like a Facebook product. Like, right, as a person, I'm like, you know, I don't have like loyalty to a front end, but it is one that I always go back to. And so I think I really try to like emulate that to think about, these developers we have on the platform who are doing crazy cool things and they've been coding for 15 years, they've been on the platform for 10 years, their problems are so niche that normally I'm just like, let me find a sales engineer to talk to you because I don't know how to solve this. The people I like to focus on are those devs who I think we can provide this ecosystem where they can really learn here and they can make mistakes and they have all these resources and our community to back them up. I think I've gone like totally off topic of what your question was, but that is something that I like especially when I first got started here, I just noticed as myself, I feel like I'm pretty good at coding now. It was still hard for me. So 
really trying to keep myself in that like beginner mindset and building everything for a beginner because worst case, you're not a beginner and you just skip to step five or whatever, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, like I was talking to someone about this recently that really good developer documentation and learning resources often have layers to them where like you can get deeper and more complex if you need to. But the starting thing that you see is often really straightforward and simple. And that's what makes it good, right? Because if you dive in and it's incredibly complex, you might be scared away, regardless of your skill level. Like I know people who are super experienced and they go to a docs page, they're like, I don't have time to like think about this, you know? Totally. It's like, if it's too much, if it's too crazy, it's like that. And then also if it's too marketing-ish, like if I get to your docs and it's like, this fluffy sales pitch. It's not really explaining. I mean, everyone's been to the docs for some product where it's like, I don't even know what this product is. Like that's how like much of a marketing push you've put on this. That as a user, I have no clue what this is. And like we think about that all the time. We're an e-commerce platform and there are other e-commerce platforms that somebody could use. And developers are often not considered decision makers at companies. But I really think in my experience, developers are very much decision makers. They might not be signing the checks, but they're informing the person who is. And if it's difficult to understand our product or difficult to get started or unfriendly to developers, people just won't use it. And I think DevRel, like emerging at big commerce and us also kind of as an org pivoting towards understanding and acknowledging that developer experience is like a number one concern and priority, not just DevRel, but for the whole company speaks to that. And also was great timing for me as DevRel that thought was like kind of ubiquitous at the company and I didn't have to sell people on it. People were like, yeah, totally on board. Like devs are really important. So you talked about something there that developers influence those buying decisions. And it feels like this constant existential problem in DevRel is like, how do we justify our existence? Or how do we measure the ROI of all of these things that we're doing that, you know, might take a really long time to pay off, right? Like, how do you think about justifying the ROI of DevRel when, you know, you're right, like anecdotally, they do influence buyers, but how do you measure that and show the proof? Great question. Anyone who's in DevRel listening to this is probably like either cringing or laughing because this is like a top concern for every DevRel team. Because at some point, your DevRel team has to prove to your financial department or to your CTO, CFO, you know, some C-suite person, like, you can draw a line between us and company success. And it's really difficult to prove. We're very much long tail. I think we kind of align ourselves with like long tail marketing in a way. And I sometimes explain it kind of like SEO. Like if you bring an SEO expert in and two weeks later, you haven't seen the results you want and you fire them, you've wasted so much money and so much time because in a year that could have worked. But SEO doesn't work in two weeks and neither does DevRel. So one way, actually the major way that we're doing this now is through an app, like a tool called Common Room. Huge shout out to Common Room if anyone's listening. Really recommend it if you're in DevRel. And it's a tool where we can aggregate all of our community members with like their email and their GitHub and kind of any information we have about them, whether they're in our Slack space or they're on Twitter. And it can just help us track everyone's behavior, how involved people are with things. And we can really start to see like patterns and we get to see all this cool stuff about the developer community. And through that, I think we're able to tie a lot of stuff together for kind of like reporting purposes. So we look a lot at like what companies are the most like how often do we have new companies emerge as community members and how often do we lose people? What is our response rate? What is our like how long does it take us to respond to people? 
those are kind of the metrics we've started looking at to start having like real tangible, like objectives for a quarter. Cause it's really hard to be like, well, our objective was to get better, you know? And it's like, okay, well, what does that literally look like? And so another way too, for us at big commerce is becoming a lot more embedded with our partnership teams. Big commerce is like a platform of partners. Like we have a million partners that build apps and integrations and all these cool things for the platform. And so the more involved with them we can be and the more involved they then become with the platform is another metric. And it's funny because in DevRel, you know, you kind of scramble to find these metrics and we know that they mean something good. And someone who is reading them sees something on paper and likes that. But really, I think a lot of what DevRel is, isn't so trackable. You know, it's difficult to track and to measure like human relationships. And that's a huge part of our job is just meeting these people. I feel sometimes like my team, we're kind of like big commerce agnostic. Like we aren't part of like a corporate machine. I mean, I don't really view big commerce as like a corporate machine, but we get to kind of be these like rogue characters that live in the community of developers And it's like, hey, you can criticize the platform all day to me. Like, I love that. Like, I get to bring this stuff in and I get to really tighten up these feedback loops. So instead of a product update taking a year, which it does at tons of companies and even at big commerce, we'll have things that take too long, but we're able to really like tighten up those feedback loops and really increase like developer sentiment. And I think that's another big metric that people like to see. If developers feel like I'm a human being listening to them and I'm going to turn around and go tell like the person who can make that change to change that and they can see that change in the next week. I think that's huge. And, you know, not every company is also able to do that where I think we're small and agile enough that we can. But yeah, I think those are kind of the major things that we look at and the major things we really try to like get down on paper to kind of like prove the worth of our team. What you are describing is very much like I sort of envision DevRel to be. I do think there's a shift away from that towards like more short-term ROI, but I'm not convinced that is necessarily a good strategic decision in the long run. Like what you're describing, I think is when I was developer evangelist at Twilio, which granted was like more than a decade ago now, you know, like that was how we thought saw the world. It was like, if there's anything we can do to help a developer be more successful, that is within our remit, you know, whether that's passing feedback to the product team, whether that's buying them dinner and talking about their startup, like, you know, there's so many different ways you can have an impact on that. And some of them are big and broad reaching. And some of them are super individual. But like, that stuff really does come back karmically, you know, in the success of a business. Totally. And I feel really lucky to be at big commerce. We're not like under fire to be like creating more and more metrics for the sake of metrics. I think, you know, we're lucky that the buy-in is top to bottom at the whole org that not only DevRel is important, but that developers are. And so I think with that like mindset shift, it's like, it just hasn't been, I thought it was going to be way more of a fight to be like, no, 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 like we need more people and here's why. And I I think we just have like the exact amount of buy-in that we really need while still remaining like accountable for like doing things and having some sort of like visible and tangible effect on the product and the company. But I know that there's other places where DevRel is, they're really you know, forced to come up with these metrics that even if they don't feel like they're meaningful, they still need to come up with them. And so we're lucky we're kind of in the middle where like, we want to track things for the sake of our own team getting better over time. You know, I think it's really difficult to get better at anything if you don't have some sort of benchmark, whether it's okay, sentiment is 80% positive right now, by the end of the quarter, we want it to be 85. Like something I think for a team is really important. But yeah, I feel really lucky that we do get to kind of still, I mean, our focus really is like, how can I help developers? What can I do to like push the buttons internally to really make it the platform developers really want? Yeah, that's fantastic. 
that's kind of a good segue into my next question here, because, you know, all of the things you're talking about, like, touch on so many different areas of expertise, and parts of the company, and ways that you can kind of serve developers, right? Like, we're talking about content, we're talking about events, we're talking about product advocacy, we're talking about like, bug fixes, like all these different things. How do you actually balance all of those different facets? And how do you guys divide it up as like an organization in terms of your scope? So great question. So right now, our DevRel team is three people. It is me. We have one other developer advocate named Steven. And then we have our developer community programs manager, Heather. And we kind of do everything. We are really strict about like prioritization. So we do like we work in sprints to help us keep really focused. And then throughout sprints, you know, work comes in sideways and we figure out how to prioritize it. But our huge areas of focus are the community really focusing on the community health and how can we get them what they need? How can we answer questions? I mean, we have a Slack space with a few thousand developers in it. So there's a lot going on there. We're really, really involved in product. So whenever we have a new product or a new feature that's developer facing, like if it's not developer facing, I don't even hear about it. But when it's developer facing, we get brought in pretty early on to like dog food, to give feedback right away. And then as alphas roll out and betas roll out, we kind of like, we have always have like a dedicated Slack channel for any new beta or alpha. We kind of manage that and try to think throughout that process, like what does this particular product need for developers to be enabled? Some of them need the whole gamut. They need a blog, they need a demo, they need an AMA. Some of them are pretty simple and small. They just need a blog. And so I feel like, you know, it's always changing where our priorities are, but we try to keep everything very much tied to our North Star of like improved and like excellent developer experience. And so there's occasionally things where we're like, this is such a good idea. Whoa. And then we're like, that's a terrible idea. We have to drop it. And we have to be, you know, pretty quick on our feet like that. We thought that was good. It was bad. Trash it and move forward, you know, with a three person team and, you know, however many tens of thousands of devs working on the platform, we got to be unattached to our ideas and unattached to things that we do, but also really just keeping that North Star in mind, I think is really useful for us, at least. So what are some of the things that you've seen that, you know, you thought were a good idea, but didn't turn out so well? So one that I did, and if anyone did like participated in this, actually, like, no one participated in this, but some people might have heard about it, is we tried to do just like a Hacktober thing, just like hopping on the train of like Hacktober being a thing. And we had all these open source repos. I feel comfortable talking about this now because we've groomed them a lot. But a lot of them were just like really out of date. Like there weren't really instructions on how to like contribute. Like I was like, oh, this will be so easy. We'll just like post about it. And then we'll just like check all the pull requests and see if it was anyone that entered the contest and whatever. And it was like so much more lift on the back end than I had thought. Our open source team, I don't think was thrilled with me. It was just like, okay, we. I thought this would just be like a quick layup. And it was coming on the heels of our first hackathon. So I think we were kind of like, okay, okay, let's ride this momentum. So that was a great learning experience because it was like, okay, we I had no clue what I was doing and I didn't do a great job. But again, it was kind of like, okay, that was terrible. And I was a little nervous. Like my boss was a director and I was like, okay, like I really, I did a terrible job on this. And he was like, yeah, move on. Like we don't even have time to think about it. It doesn't matter. And no one knew it was bad because no one participated. So I don't think anyone even knew that it went poorly except for me when I'm checking pull requests and I'm like, there's zero. How weird. But it was honestly, I feel like everything we've done wrong on our team ends up being a really good learning experience. Like DevRel existed at Big Commerce before me. 
but didn't exist when I got here. So there was like, I had some notes from previous DevRels. I had some, I worked closely with our like merchant community team for a while. And as I kind of gathered info, it just became clear. We're just going to have to start trying stuff. Like we're just going to have to try and fail and learn and see where things go. So not to like negate a bad job that I did because I did do a bad job, but I think a fun thing, and actually a really nice thing about big commerce is that I've been given a lot of flexibility to just like give things a shot. You know, there's no sense in not trying. And if things fail, you know, just delete the tweet that you announced it in and move on and everyone will forget. I absolutely love that philosophy. Like there's a guy that I used to run into all the time, but he was a really prolific tech blogger. And he told me the story once of how he learned to blog consistently by doing it every day. And eventually he realized that like the fact that no one was reading his blog was actually a really good thing because he was super embarrassed by all the posts in retrospect, but it helped him build the habit and like iterate to a point where people would actually be interested in what he was talking about. And it took a lot of really crappy blog posts to get there, right? And it, you know, no one looks back on them. So it doesn't matter. And you always feel like embarrassed for trying things or like embarrassed for like being on the internet or like doing anything publicly. You're like, oh my God, my friends are going to read this. Like people I know are going to see this. Number one, no, they're not. My friends aren't looking up the videos I'm in about e-commerce or technology. Like they don't care. And even if they did, they'd be like, cool. You know, but you think about your, like if I saw my friends doing that, I'd be like, oh my God, that's so cool. But you're like worried other people are going to, you know, there's so much like perception problem, I think. But yeah, the more you do it, the more it's just so comfortable. In the opposite vein to like unexpected failures, like what's something that was an unexpected like hit? Our hackathons. So our hackathon thing all started because, and I think people had proposed them in the past. It wasn't like a novel idea no one at BigCommerce had ever heard about. But I like a Web3 hackathon last spring or like two springs ago. And I was thinking to myself like, this was so fun. Like I won a bunch of money, like everyone won. Like it wasn't really that hard. I learned a ton. Like it was really great. And when I came back to work after it, we were thinking like, okay, what could we do? What would be a fun developer event? And we were like, what about a hackathon? And we had just kind of started to get some like footing at big, like our team had started to get some footing at big commerce. Other teams started to know who we were. People were starting to talk to us instead of us having to talk to them. And we pitched it and we were like, everyone's going to just say no. And they didn't. Everyone was super into it. And then I was like, shoot, is anyone going to even register for this thing? And we had like 80 people register and like a bunch of teams submitted really cool projects. It was such an awesome way to meet all these devs in our ecosystem outside of like Slack and Twitter, you know, like actually talking to people. It gave us like all this cool content to create doing, you know, lightning talks throughout the hackathon about cool stuff. It was just awesome. And I have a really great team that put a ton of work into it. But I think we were really surprised at like how excited our community was to do something like that together. Because you really never know if everyone's going to be like, I'm not going to take a week of my time to like build something for your little contest. But tons of people did. And so, yeah, so that's been something that we've been doing kind of like an ongoing way. We're like about to launch our third one in a couple of weeks. But those have been great. And obviously got our wheels turning on like, okay, we're not going to just be doing hackathons only forever. What else can we do? But yeah, I've just like loved doing the hackathons. If this could be my job constantly, I would love that. If anyone have a new title, that's just like hackathon ambassador or something. But I felt like it was really successful for us and for devs. And I think anything that's that, where it's like, we are getting a ton out of this as a company, but the developers are really, really getting a lot out of it too. Like anything I can find that's in the middle of that Venn diagram, I think is like such a win. So the hackathons without a doubt. 
That's what I love to hear. You know, it's funny, like I didn't even necessarily like know that that was such a big thing for you all before we did this. But obviously that resonates with us. Like we do 200 hackathons a year and there's literally people on our team whose full-time job is hackathon community manager. And like all they do is like help people plan hackathons. Which is literally a full-time job. Yeah, right now we're like, oh my God, we need like 15 interns that just manage Slack to talk to people through hackathons. Because it really, it's crazy because you still have your regular job going on. Like you still have DevRel stuff and you want people to ask questions. Like you want incentive. Like I want you to be bugging me all day and night about the hackathon. That's great. But then it's also like, how do I respond to all these people and get them all the information they need? So it's a lot of work going into it. So I don't doubt you guys have a lot of people dedicated. (laughs) Yeah. And so are these events, you said they're a week long, they're virtual, like distributed events, right? How do you actually conduct them? Like you said, it's over Slack. Like, is there a lot of like video chats involved? Like what's the sort of like format and how do you interact with people? Great question. So they've all been virtual. I think the first one was two weeks and then the last one is 10, you know, but they're all hovering around a week-ish. And we've thought extensively about doing one in person, but our problem is that we have like extremely global community. So we have huge hubs in in the in North America, in Europe, in like Asia and Australia. We have and then kind of dotted all over the planet, but those we have these huge communities. So doing them in person is just really hard. So as we run them now, we do everything over Slack. So they're all added to this like Slack channel in our developer Slack space, which is great because we want them there. Like once they're in, they're in. And it's great because then they realize like this is a really great little resource and community. And you know they, they don't have to do anything to be there. They just have to be there. And then we have done video series for all of them. So the first one was over Zoom, disaster, like scheduling them and getting them up was just like, I was doing it constantly. It probably was not a Zoom problem. It was definitely a me problem. And then the last one, we, I think we just recorded them and uploaded them. And then this time around, we finally have some good software to be just streaming them to our YouTube so that, you know, then it's like everyone can watch them asynchronously, like nothing. It's fun to be in them live if you can be, but it's not a huge deal if you can't be. And we we let everyone know ahead of time what all the talks are so that they have specific questions, but they're in Australia and it's going to be three in the morning when the talk is happening, we can still get those questions answered. And so it's a lot of asynchronous support via Slack, unless you're in North America, then it might be synchronous because we're online, but not a lot of video chatting. I think like, you know, if, if there was a hacker that really wanted to hop on a call, we'd be more than happy to, but really I've been like shocked with like the little amount of assistance people really need. It's more like at the very beginning and the very end, which maybe you guys have experienced that where it's like, how do I do this? Or what should my idea be? Is this idea good? Like kind of people really wanting to understand the scope and like the rules and everything. And then, you know, the day of submission, oh no, I didn't, I forgot. You know, pretty flexible if you, you know, live in India and it's not submitted by midnight in Colorado, that's fine. But Really, people don't seem to need a ton of support during it. But yeah, that's kind of how we run them. Like very asynchronous, but also can be synchronous if you're in one of our time zones. Eventually, we'd love to have advocates kind of like dotted around the world so that these things can actually run much more synchronously, like depending on where you are, or no matter where you are, rather. But right now, we're all in Colorado, Austin, Texas, or North Carolina. So we're a little limited by our location. Yeah, we're also a fairly global community. and. For a while, when we would do our virtual hackathons, we would literally have like a 48 hour sh- like shift where it was like, okay, like 
you know, following the sun basically around the world, like different people were up online. It's really difficult to schedule. I don't know that I would recommend it, but it was interesting. Like you definitely had people online doing stuff at all hours of the day, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's crazy. We kind of like, we sort of tried that in our first one where we were up really late or online really early. And I think I just started to realize like, I don't know if this is a big enough value add, especially because we might have, you know, say we have a hundred people in a hackathon, like maybe 50 of like half or somewhere, you know, so it, it was kind of, I think you guys probably deal with like, like way more people. And in our last one, one of our featured product in it was for a product team that's in Australia. So we did kind of have this like half and half thing, which was really cool. And for this one, we won't have that. But so far, most of our registrants are from North America and Europe, but still that doesn't help. So, you know, I think figuring out asynchronous is the best for us for right now. No, I think it's a really good model. Out of curiosity, like, are the participants primarily people who are already familiar with big commerce who are trying something new? Or is it a lot of people coming in using your developer platform for the first time? It has mostly been people are very familiar with the platform. So our first one was just the prompt was build anything to the platform, notably too vague. We learned that. And so that was really only going to be people that knew about the platform because it's so much lift to like learn about a platform and then learn to build something for it. Our last one was sort of similar, but it was we did it with Stripe. And so it was using some Stripe APIs and some of our APIs to build a little bit more of a specific prompt, but not by a ton. And then this one we're doing is with Google and we're using Google's AI APIs and our platform. So my prediction is it's going to, you know, it's probably mostly always going to be people that are familiar with big commerce. But my hope is that it becomes people that are cursorily familiar with big commerce. So Say you've built apps for Shopify or for WooCommerce or for, you know, insert name of another e-commerce platform, then the lift isn't so big for you. You understand the needs of e-commerce. You understand. And like our platform, like I said, like ideally, I mean, in my opinion, it's moving to a place where it's increasingly easier to get started. And so like, I think my target is probably never going to be just like devs, like in the ether, but more so devs who are familiar with some facet of the platform and it gives them a cool opportunity to build something. So like for this upcoming one, one of the prizes for the winning teams is that you don't pay an app fee, submit your app to our app store and you won't pay rev share for six months. So I think having these kinds of prizes, yeah, like some of, and then there's cash prizes for the top three, but as we consider who we want in, I think those kinds of prizes become so valuable because it's like, now these people say you have an app on a different platform and you've thought about putting it on ours, but like you don't want to pay the app fee or you don't want to pay the rev share. Now you have a chance to say, okay, why don't we just go try building something in there during this little competition that we've thought about building anyway. And then we have the opportunity to not pay rev share. We have the ear of the big commerce team during the whole build process. So I would love if we could pivot to that as well. I love the big commerce devs who join us for all the hackathons. Like I call them our usual suspects and they all know who they are. And they're amazing. And I like love having them around. And I think even they would benefit from more people coming into the ecosystem with like diverse backgrounds, diverse experience, e-commerce, and just diverse experience, kind of like building in general. That's awesome. And I love the idea that like the incentive for doing the event is a way to almost like support the continued development of their projects, right? Like, I feel like your platform probably has this really unique, almost like marketplace effect where it's not just developers using it, like that's great, but they're using it 
a lot of times for their business or for their livelihood or for all of these things that are sort of like, I don't know, like have a built in like feedback loop and incentive where they get to hear from their customers and users, you get to hear from them and it all kind of comes together in this bigger platform. Yeah, totally. And I think that's what's really fun about it. And honestly, I didn't know that about big commerce when I started working here. I knew nothing about big commerce when I started. I always laugh like they really took a big like chance on me because I had never done Devrel and I showed no real knowledge of the company besides like, you know, the Google search you do before you get hired. But I think like that dynamic of like, we are a platform and we not only welcome, but like encourage you to build things that you think are missing and make money on them, like add them to the app store, like have people pay you like, you know, we want you to come here and be successful. And whether that means you're a merchant and you're just like, you have your own little store and like, it's just you and just one store, whether you're an agency building hundreds, thousands of storefronts, or you're someone building apps, like there's a place for kind of everyone at the table. And I think there's, it's fun because there's like so many different ways, those different types of people or developers find success on the platform. We're not just talking to like, you know, three versions of one persona. It's like, six completely different personas of developers that like have totally different needs and totally different goals. So I think it really makes it fun. That's super cool. So I have to ask, because you mentioned AI, where do you see AI playing into your like, I don't know, like what you think people are going to be doing with big commerce? Are you curious about AI generally? Like, what's sort of your perspective on this new, you know, I'll call it a fad. It's probably a fad that's not going away. But Yeah, I think it's kind of the fad that like gets a mind of its own and it can't go away. I think that's probably like everyone's fear. I think in e-commerce, it's actually fun to think about AI in e-commerce because it really narrows the scope of AI in my mind. When I think about like a robot becoming sentient, taking over the world, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't even want to think about that. In e-commerce, it's more like generating product descriptions, like creating like automatic ways to like do inventory management, to do like customer recommendations. I think as like, online shoppers, which I think today we all are, we're encountering AI more than we even realize. Like these chatbots that drive us all to the brink of insanity, like these are AI, you know, like when things are recommended to you based on things you've done, like there's a chance that an AI feature. So I think, especially for this hackathon, something we've talked to people about is number one, we don't want to see 15 submissions that are generative product descriptions, you know, like that one's a layup. We get that one. But really thinking like, rather than creating tech for the sake of tech, which I think happens a lot with these fads, right? Like we saw a lot of things with Web3 that made Web3 look kind of foolish, even though I think there's a lot of really cool things in Web3. AI, I think has the same like risk factors, but also the same number of like practical applications that could actually impact the daily lives of merchants or developers building on the platform. So I'm really curious to see what people come up with. I know we have a list of some like suggested projects that most of them are kind of like the chatbots, inventory management, catalog management. You can generate product images. You can do kind of stuff like that. I mean, I think we've all seen kind of what AI generated images look like. I think they have a little... They have a ways to go in quality. Some of them are obviously bizarre. But yeah, and I think also personally, I'm really excited for our devs to get really into AI. I'm not like personally interested in it outside of like the scope of big commerce. But yeah, I think that's kind of where I am. I'm interested in what the devs are interested in, you know, and if this is what they're diving down, this is the rabbit hole they want to dive down, I'll definitely go with them. But I think this hackathon will really shed a lot of light onto kind of like, what are people actually thinking about? And we have no idea what they're going to build. I think we can assume what we think they're going to build or we have some ideas. But I think that will give us like a really interesting look into the minds of the devs on the platform and kind of like where they're thinking AI and e-commerce intersect. Because I think it's probably going to be different person to person. 
Yeah, almost certainly. I'm also curious one day to see like, where does AI and DevRel intersect? You know, like who's going to make that AI bot to like answer questions about your documentation? Yeah. And, and it's funny too, because like, I don't really want these bots to learn empathy because I think that's like the way every scary movie about AI is going to start. That's such an integral part of developer advocacy and developer relations is like hearing someone's problem and like really thinking it through their lens and kind of putting yourself in their shoes. So I'm hopeful that I don't get AI'd out of my job anytime soon, but you know, who knows? (laughs) I think it'll become more of a utility than a replacement, but maybe I'm an optimist. I don't know. No, and I actually think that could ideally tie back into like metrics for DevRel. Like there could be a really cool way that some machine learning algorithm measures some more meaningful metrics about DevRel that like as a person with a spreadsheet, I can't do. But with like advanced data science and machine learning, I'm sure someone out there will create it. So if someone hears this, um, you can have that idea if you run with it and create it. So zooming back out to like you learning to code, you teaching people to code, all the work you do with the big commerce developer community, what are some things that you'd like to see change or evolve around how developers like start out, like how they learn to code initially? That's a really good question. So I think the barriers to entry should be a lot lower. I think, and actually an issue that we have is like, it's really hard for developers, I think, especially starting out to find reliable resources. And I think that's why so many people do boot camps is it's like a, someone aggregated all the information for you. So you'll go there, but everyone who goes to a boot camp at some point when they're mad at the boot camp, because everyone experiences that, it's like misdirected emotions or you're mad at the teacher is like, I could just learn this online. And it's like, yeah, you definitely could just learn this online. But I think like creating more platforms, kind of like what I was saying about big commerce, like creating platforms with learning in mind, I think is a really cool model for like tech companies that are like a tool. So big commerce as a tool, I think it like behooves us to think about like, what if I was a merchant who had no technical background, I understood how to use my control panel and kind of like the website itself that big commerce provides me. But now I really want to be able to make changes on my website. I really want to be able to do XYZ without paying however many thousands of dollars to a dev like the one I had who, you know, would take three weeks to change the background color. Not saying all devs are like that. They're not. But I think looking at things through the lens of someone who is learning and just wants to make these like just like empower people to be able to do things that aren't complicated. Like if, okay, someone wants to create an API and do all, you know, whatever they want to do complicated stuff. Yeah, that might require more. But I think especially through the lens of like DevRel, creating content that is really easy for people to use and really easy for people to learn with, I think is something that I think about all the time. I love that idea of developer platforms as an entry point for people to learn to code. There's this like apocryphal story that I bring up all the time from the early days of Twilio, where some product manager, I think it was at Intuit or something, like went on the Twilio docs, had been begging these developers on his team for a feature for months. And was like, I'm so frustrated, I'm going to build it myself. And he went on the docs, and he was able to build this like MVP level prototype of his thing, because the docs were that accessible at that point in time. And like, I think you're right, like, there's a ton of people out there who are like, on the cusp of doing some coding, but they've mm-hmm. never had the right like resources or support network to get there, right? And a lot of opportunity there. And there's a huge difference between being like a software engineer at a company where you're like building products and features and like 
doing really complicated work and like building a basic web page for yourself. You know, like these more basic things should be accessible. And I think Twilio is known for their very good documentation. So that doesn't surprise me. But it's funny that like in my mind, I can think of like four or five companies that just have like stellar documentation. And the bar for that is just like being usable. You know, and that's so funny because every developer has probably had this exact experience. I'm sure you have where you go to build something and you're banging your head against the wall. Why won't this work? Why won't this work? And then you just find out the docs are wrong. And it's like, this is crazy. So I think, and as someone who has gone through that a million times, always defaults to blaming myself because I was so bad at coding. I have this like trauma from being so bad. I'm like, no way is it the docs. I think looking at things through that lens and remembering like, We don't want people to have that kind of experience here. We want people to be like, oh my gosh, have you gone through that documentation? It is so good. We want them to bring it up as an example of something that's so easy to use. Because it's like, I want people to look at big commerce the way I look at React, where I'm like, this taught me so much just by being easy to use. You know, like it wasn't like, oh, I sat there reading it for days. It's like, no, it just got me through a hello world app build, which was taught me so much with so little, but teaches you so much, you know, and gives you that kind of like that good feeling. Like I did something, I made something like I can look at it and it works. And I want people to have that experience on our platform too. I love it. That's an inspiring goal. And difficult to get there, but we will. I'm sure we will. The question I always like to finish up on is I like to ask people if there's any like aspirational figure you would love to like spend a couple hours with, like dead or alive, someone who does interesting tech stuff, science, maybe totally unrelated to tech and science, just someone you look up to that you would love to like pick their brain for a couple hours about how they see the world. Okay, this will be so weird because there's a chance that he might see this because our companies work together. But Lee Robb from Vercel, he runs DevRel at Vercel. And I like look at them the way like kids look at like a rock star where I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how they do all this. I don't know how they have this many hours in the day. Their video production is amazing. Like they really have honed in on like how to talk to developers and how to enable them and how to really like empower developers to like build stuff and do stuff and know about stuff. And I just think like their team does such a phenomenal job. And as a team where we're kind of this like roll your own, we've been throwing stuff at the wall, we're really learning. And, you know, we've only been a team for a year and a half, like not even two years. So it's like, I don't feel bad about where we are. I just know there's so much to learn. And so I really do look up to teams that have been so successful in DevRel for so long, because there's not really that many. You know, a lot of companies have DevRel, but I think Vercel has just done like a bang up job at making theirs. Like they do not need to talk to anyone about metrics, I'm guessing. You know, like it is clear how useful they are. And so, yeah, if you get Lee Rob for a few hours and really pick his brain on how they've done that and what they've learned and what mistakes they made, I think that'd be awesome for me. So Lee, if you somehow hear this, you know where to find me. And that feels very attainable. Yeah, it's very possible. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Katie. Where can people find your work if they want to see other things that you and the Big Commerce team are up to? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm Katie underscore Hosley. And if you can't spell Hosley, that's totally fine. Big Commerce Devs is also our team Twitter. And I retweet myself on there all the time. You'll find me right away. And you can also visit our developer center, which is developer.bigcommerce.com. And really everything we're doing is, is all right there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I always love meeting other liberal arts people in tech and DevRel. I hope everyone enjoyed listening and will subscribe for future episodes. We're putting them out every week. So thank you, everyone, and happy hacking. Thank you. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking, 
and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking. Thank <laughs> you.